0: This week's episode of the Art Tactic Podcast is brought to you by Art Forecaster. Visit artforecaster.com today to play in our Grand Slam forecasting competition for the London June auctions. Leave predictions for what artworks will sell for at auction, in Impressionist modern and post-organ temporary sales, and win prizes. Visit artforecaster.com to play today. Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. In this week's episode, we're here with Judd Tolley, veteran art market reporter, to recap Art Basel, arguably the most important art fair in the world. Judd covered Art Basel extensively for Art News. Judd, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Sure thing. There were several high-value sales at this year's fair, which you reported. Do you feel like there's been a shift over the last decade or so in terms of the overall value of art being brought by galleries to Basel. Are we seeing a big increase?
1: Um, I, I think it really depends on the gallery. I mean, uh, uh, historically, I would say there's always been high-value art brought to Basel, especially Basel in Switzerland, where the fair originated. Um, and those high-value Uh, works would usually be found at, you know, something like Aquavella Gallery or some sort of blue chip gallery better known for, say, Impressionist or modern works. But that has really changed in the last, well, more than a few years. But, you know, you're hearing big prices for different names. And again, you have this pecking order there, which is also interesting and where you have essentially two floors and the first floor, the ground floor of Art Basel is usually the higher end, more blue chip galleries and then upstairs and there's escalator and stairways that lead to the second floor You have either newer galleries, more contemporary galleries, where the price points, as it were, would be, you know, generally quite a bit lower. And there's also now that's been going on since the art market has been in flux and galleries are facing various challenges that you know, galleries in a way, even the, some of the best ones come and go. So openings arrive. So you might have a dealer on the second floor that for one reason or another is able to be accepted to move downstairs, which is, you know, great for those galleries. Um, because people usually tend to at least on the very first, there are two maybe even three um, sort of VIP days before the actual fair opens to the public. And a lot of the activity begins on the ground floor. So that's where you want to be eventually.
0: We saw a lot of overdue commercial success, I'd say, for female and African-American artists during the May auctions in New York. Did that trend continue at Basel?
1: This most recent fair, there were two artists that really stood out in terms of not just not even necessarily the quality of the work, but name it would be the late abstract expressionist painter Joan Mitchell and the um, African American uh, uh, artist Sam Gilliam, who Formerly was known being identified. He, you know, has lived for many many decades in Washington DC and Was sort of affiliated uh, With this group called the Washington color school And I'm not talking about race now I'm just talking about the use of color like very much like Joan Mitchell did and um, It was perfect timing or the perfect moment for Gilliam Who? um, is elderly, but, you know, still with us, thankfully. And at, um, the, uh, uh, Basel, uh, uh, Kunstmuseum, um, there was an exhibition called the color of music. And it was a beautiful, beautifully installed show of a very short period of, um, Gilliam's work ranging from I think the late 60s to the early 70s and these two bodies of works that are known as drapes the drape series and the beveled series or beveled edge series and there were examples of both these works at various galleries in the fair and Needless to say um, from my information they all sold at prices from uh, you know the mid, mid to high six figures to just under two million dollars. So Gilliam is someone who, you know, has been around for sure, but suddenly, you know, where you have Kordansky Gallery in Los Angeles, you have Minutian Gallery in New York, and you have um, Alexander Gray, also a New York dealer um, showing the work and you know, no one wants to release prices to make it confusing. I could give you know a few more examples um, uh, perhaps even a better example um, staying on this African-American theme would be Carrie James Marshall, who very famously last, May, one of his paintings sold at Sotheby's for, I don't know, it was $25 million or excess of that. And um, there were two examples that I was aware of um, at the fair, uh, one with uh, Jack Shaneman, a New York dealer who has been representing Carrie James Marshall since the mid 1990s way, way, way before he became, you know, famous and market, you know, a market darling, so to speak. And the other work was at, um, David's Werner gallery, uh, you know, Goliath in comparison. Um, but both were paintings that came from a series called vignettes, but they were separated by about 10 years. And, um, both, dealers were exceptionally quiet about saying anything about the values of the work. And in large part, from what Jack Shainman told me, the reason being that Carrie James Marshall, who's in his probably mid-60s, lives in Chicago, was just sick to death of, you know, market talk. And it was, you know, he wanted to be just, you know, sort of left alone in the studio so that's that african american side and shaneman has also had a great painting by an artist uh who uh, passed away named um i believe barclay Hendricks, and one of his paintings from 1973 sold um for i think it was something like 1.7 million but anyway so that's you know you have mark bradford um, and then when we switch over to your, you know, other side of your question about women artists, there's no question on someone who's been gaining traction market wise and reputation wise. I mean, she's, um, is Joan Mitchell. And again, you had a number of galleries with works by her and it doesn't hurt that I believe it was just announced that, um, She's going to be having a, a, a retrospective, uh, you know, she, um, at the um, Whitney coming up. Um, so anyway, so then you have another sort of numbers game where different galleries are having works from uh, periods, different periods. Um, you had uh, Levy Gorvy. Uh, selling a Mitchell from I believe it was 1958 I could be wrong it was either 58 or 59 that sold for around 14 million <clears throat> David Werner had an example I'm uh, I'm sorry um, Hauser and Wirth had an example and uh, the New York dealer Edward Tyler Nahum had a Joan Mitchell so that was what three or four and then also um, chime and Reed, uh, the New York based gallery that has been representing the estate for many years. And it recently, uh, uh, switched over to, um, to Zwerner, um, very recently. So, um, you know, there are other examples. I mean, for years, um, talking about women artists, uh, Louise Bourgeois has been, you know, represented at the fair. And, of course, Kusama, another major uh, woman artist and still living and producing work was there. So, you know, I, I think it's just more becoming, um, you know, whether it's their time, if you can put it in that way, or just, you know, perhaps the market is slightly tired of the same old, you know, faces
0: Yeah, I can imagine that this topic was something that was discussed frequently throughout the week at Basel. Um, What were a few of the other major topics that you heard time and time again from speaking to insiders throughout the week?
1: Well, it's, I mean, there was one topic, I can't really go into it, but there was quite a bit of talk about uh, an unnamed, well, in this example, uh, an unnamed London-based art advisor who apparently has been uh, scamming several fairly well-known private dealers and advisors on art transactions and sort wow. of um, uh, mentioning the name and, and talking about it uh, to almost like a fire alarm of alerting people you know, not to deal with this individual if they were approached. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things, I mean, and not so much, uh, in a positive light and not that that was, um, but this, uh, year's art Lim- uh, art unlimited, which is a sort of circus like, uh, major installation by major artists, um, that's in a large hall that's adjacent on the mesoplats, the name of the square where the Art Basel building resides. Well, not Art Basel, but the uh, organization that owns it. Um, And people were fairly, I would say, disappointed with the presentations this year that it somehow seemed less... um, Adventurous, or sort of, there seemed to be kind of a more cautious air to it. Um, that said, there were some really, you know, excellent um, pieces uh, and works that were also uh, for sale um, in Art Unlimited. But it's, you know, it's it's this, um, it's kind of this machine that um, continues to evolve. And the Art Basel organization, you know, they have it's it's Miami in December, uh, Hong Kong now in um, I believe it's in the month of March, and Basel Basel um, in June. Those are the three tiers, and the organization um, is also been investing and buying smaller regional art fairs across the globe from India to Germany. So, you know, it's, there's some talk about that. Um, There was also uh, as a backdrop to all of this, the, a few years ago, the uh, Herzog de Muren architecture firm built this, enormous sort of I don't know what you want to call it structure over the Mesa plots and made it seem very You know 21st century um, Kind of like the if you've ever been to the Pantheon and it has that big Dome and you look up and there's this kind of circle of light. It's kind of in a way like that but in different materials but anyway, they built it apparently because the big daddy that of uh, fairs, not art fairs, but just trade fairs has been the watch fair, which of course Switzerland, that's where so many of the world's great watches are made. Um, that was sort of the engine behind that development. And because of also in the last few years, the onset of um, Apple watches and different devices that watches are really going down in terms of, you know, commerce and a lot of the dealers have been dropping out. So that was a conversation also of people who knew about, (coughs) excuse me, more of the politics back room and of the organization of, um, these fairs that they're now going to be under bigger pressure to perform uh, perhaps at a higher level because of lessening revenues from the watch fair. Maybe that's a bit overblown, but that's in terms of uh, perhaps back into the real art realm, um, there were uh, There's one great, I mean, I'm not sure if it's sold, but one of the best stories that I heard, I don't know stories, but at uh, the same Edward Tyler Nahum uh, gallery, there was a 1982 uh, Basquiat work um, that was, I believe it was a work on paper laid down on panel and Edward Tyler Nam, who's been in business for a long time, told me that um, the painting, he had originally sold the painting many, many years ago, probably some, not that, you know, probably in that same decade it was made um, for around, uh, I think it was under $50,000. And then that same owner came back to him remarkably uh, and wanted him to re offer it at uh, uh, Basel. And uh, I'm not sure it sold, but I think the price was around 11, the asking price at least was around 11 million. And bear with me because, you know, this was, I don't know, last week, and sometimes these numbers uh, sort of uh, get confused. But anyway, uh, I thought it was great that um, you had this collector who went back to the original dealer or and you know may as opposed to just going to auction which would seem to be the normal course um and that's it i just want to um mention one thing that also struck me um and it's i think of i wouldn't call it disturbing but it's very much akin to the auction arena now where the art fairs, um, they're so expensive uh, for the participants to do, they do a tremendous amount of pre-selling, pre-marketing before the fair. So in other words, if you're on the gallery's client list, you get you know, JPEGs of every work they're going to bring to the fair, and you have a chance to really buy it before it arrives. And even if you buy it before it arrives, uh, a number of these galleries still put the work up and say, oh, we sold this, and blah, blah, blah. And then if you wind up asking, sometimes they'll say, oh, well, yes, we did sell it, you know, shortly before coming here. So it's, to me, it's sort of like a, a form of, uh auction house guarantee where you have works coming up for sale in the auction and they've essentially been pre-sold before the auction. And and again, that's kind of that because of the uncertainty, even though the market seems to be very strong and seems to be, if not surging, just, you know, very not weak. I mean, several dealers were, either told me or were quoted in other publications saying <clears throat> that this particular edition of Basel was their best ever. Uh, and again, you never, I mean that the other thing with these fairs, you never really know when someone says, yes, I sold that for, you know, whatever amount, but you know, who knows if the transaction actually went through. Cause sometimes people walk away and, you know, don't come back with the check or whatever it is or the wire transfer.
0: <clears throat> and now that the fair has ended, we can take a step back and kind of assess where the contemporary art market is. Um, do you feel like there's any concerns when it comes to the state of the contemporary art market? Most of the reporting seem to be incredibly positive. Um, are things really as strong as being reported?
1: I think to a degree. Uh, what do you want to call it, <clears throat> it being the art market, bulletproof? I, I, I see it more as um, more like a bubble where people, you know, enter these fairs or enter an auction room. And um, because of the tremendous amount of wealth that seems to be everywhere, Uh, buying expensive works of art or even not so expensive works of art isn't that you know big of a deal and especially if it makes someone feel good either in appreciating the work hanging it on the wall or simply tucking it away in a bank vault or waiting three years or two years you know to try to you know monetize uh to realize a big gain i mean there is i would say there's quite a bit of also talk amongst well dealers uh art advisors um and of course it's their bread and butter but that there are more collectors and i'm putting that in quotation marks who are really in it for Um, you know, a a transactional thrill, as it were, to try to, you know, as if you were investing in some other type of asset for a quick gain. And, you know, you read these stories or articles or follow the auctions and, you know, every five years usually works, you know, when they, they were in the primary market, if they come to the secondary market, you know, they would do pretty well. So that's also, a bit of, you know, between the <clears throat> reference I made to the guarantees and more of the speculative nature of, um, of art buying, um, you know, I think it's, it's sort of less, if that's worth saying, genuine as it might have been at some other period of time.
0: Judd, thanks so much for coming out of the podcast and recapping Art Basel for us, as well as discussing the current state of the contemporary art market. And if our listeners want to follow you, you're always posting pictures relating to the art world, the art market on Instagram, and also all of your articles and various publications are posted on your website. What's the address to your website as well as your Instagram handle?
1: The Instagram is judd.tully, and the website is judd.tully.net.
0: Thanks so much again, Judd. Really appreciate it.
1: Take care. Thanks.